This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget, you can listen to the show live on your radio at Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Now, where are you listening to this? Are you listening to this when you should be at work, frankly? Uh, the big message of the budget this week is going to be get back to work. The government's spending £7 billion on it, but exactly how many people more do they think they're going to get into jobs? I ask Mel Stride, the Worker Pension Secretary, who also reveals he's played golf once, he got a hole in one. Uh, good for him. Uh, so that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as part of our reshuffle of the Economist panels uh, that we always start the podcast with, we've got a brand new one for Thursdays. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, it's a it's a work in progress. This we are joined by Manveen Rana. Morning, Manveen. Hello, hi. So it's a work. It's 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 M and M. It's Manveen and Matthew. Matthew Paris will be here at some point, uh, possibly, but he's not available at the moment because he's on a holiday. The other Matthews are available, and so to, who is today's Matthew? It's music journalist Matt Charlton. Morning, Matt. No other Matthews are available. I am the only Matthew. <laughs> How dare you? Uh, Matt, are you a Matt or are you really a Matthew? I'm only a Matthew when I've done something wrong. Yeah. Um, so I'll be a Matthew quite a lot during this conversation, I'm sure. I'm I'm the same. I'm the same. Where, I, I am the only person here who isn't called Matt. I'm feeling slightly left out. Yeah, that's true. Should I change, should I change my name by Deepol before before the end of this show? I'll definitely get onto that. If we could change your name to Matthew, then we can get a new <laughs> jingle done. Uh, that's excellent. Oh, uh, so much easier. It makes life much, much easier. But if slightly confusing on air, as I discovered yesterday, speaking to four people called Jeremy all at the same time. Uh, right, uh, talking of which, so it was Jeremy Hunt. It was because of Jeremy Hunt and his budget yesterday. Um, is this, Manveen, the, the sort of the baby boomer budget? Um, you know... Uh, there's uh, stuff to help them on their pensions. Um, what do you What do you think? What did you want to make of the budget yesterday? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I sort of looked at it and immediately realised I'd be paying more. So not so great for me. But you're right. You know, um, the advantages are definitely for people who are older, who have pensions, who can afford to have huge pension pots in a way that I think anyone my age yeah. just sort of thought, well, that that's never going to matter, is it? Um so it, it it is odd, but then you know you've got to remember the Tory party voter demographic is generally a little bit older, and they do tend to turn up and vote. So you know it's it's a very 
very obvious um, dash for, for the next election, I would have thought. And it's There'll be more to come. And it's interesting, that's where the, the big sort of row is right now, that Labour, the one thing that Labour, you know, categorical that it would reverse is this... Um, uh, taking a cap off how much you can save in a pension. Um, and Matt, you spotted an article about how, yeah, it's quite interesting this, the midlife crisis might be no more because our generation can't, um, don't have time basically to, to, to have a midlife crisis. We don't have time and we can't afford one essentially. Um, <laughs> whereas you used to hit, I think this is from originally from the New York Times, where you used to sort of near 40. Um, and you woke up one day and realised that you got pretty much your life, you got the boxes ticked, you got your job, maybe you got married, maybe you got your kids, you got your nice semi-detached in uh, Surbiton. Um, we simply don't have that sort of stability anymore. And as someone who is approaching 40 from the right side at the moment, um, it doesn't look like that's going to change at all. So um, millennials, which is such a bizarre thing to say, but millennials are going to be the middle-aged people soon. And um, we are the generation, the boomerang generation and the generation of, of renters as well. So we're not going to be able to have the midlife crisis that gets a Harley Davidson <laughs> or a sports car or, you know, that haircut that we've always wanted to get or, you know, buy, buy the uh, the record, the jukebox to put in the rumpus. Thing. You know, that's all. <laughs> we can't do that. You must have a jukebox, Matt, as a music journalist. I wish I had a jukebox. Any jukebox companies listening, please send it to yeah. me. But no, I don't know where to put it anyway. <laughs> that's a good one. I thought it was a really interesting thought, this man, Veen, of of how when we keep saying that, you know, uh, it, disposable incomes still won't be back, I think by 2027, still won't be back to pre-pandemic levels, even those pre-pandemic levels were struggling to get back to sort of pre-crash levels. There's a whole generation yeah. of people who are never going to be able to afford to have a midlife crisis. I know, it's so sad. Um, I mean, you know, the, the idea that a midlife crisis used to involve buying a convertible is just so laughable now. But you're right, you know, for, for my generation, you know, we, we didn't really see wages rise post-2008. And, you know, everyone talks about 2008 as the big sort of cutoff. But to be honest, so I entered the workforce just as September the 11th was happening. Um, and that meant that there was suddenly sort of a freeze on jobs. Nobody was getting advertising, you know, the banking sector was collapsing. And we had just about were coming out of that in 2008 happened. So we've never really known a time where, you know, you get wonderful bonuses, you can start planning for the future, you can you, you can have a savings account, God forbid. So, you know, the idea rubbish. of now being able to splash out. Things have always been rubbish, well, stuff, It's true, though, because st stuff has hit as we've reached critical points in our lives. So September the 11th, we're all around, well, early school leaving age, around that time, sort of becoming adults. Um, the financial crisis, we were just getting into the professional side of the workforce. Brexit, we were just becoming the senior professionals. It's just all hit at the wrong time for us. And I know there's going to be a lot of people writing in now going, oh, woe is me, the avocado toast generation with their lattes. But no, stuff has really hit at the wrong point for us. Yeah, actually, I think it's a nice it makes a nice change for us to be moaning rather than the boomers. <laughs> uh, right, let's move on. Because let's make ourselves let's make ourselves all feel very old. Because uh, twenty five years ago this week, the enemy uh, turned on Tony Blair. So obviously, around Britpop and the nineteen ninety seven election, everyone thought that Tony Blair was dead cool. But it took well less than eight less than a year basically, and the enemy turned. 
in March 1998, the front page story, ever had the feeling you've been cheated? Welfare to work, student tuition fees, no debate on drugs, curfews, rock and roll takes on the government. So in a moment, we're going to talk about politics and pop. But, so I've pulled together, or they had a list of takes on the government with a little help from these bands. How many of these bands do you recognise? Just what is it that you want to do? Well, we want to be free. We want to be free to, to do what we want to do. Apart from sounding like my own personal Spotify playlist, Matt, presumably <laughs> you got all those, I assume. This is the best pub quiz ever. I think I've, I've got 10 out of 10 here. Right, go on then. Who who was in that list? Okay, Volve. The Volve. Verve. The Verve, Primal correct. Screen. Primal Screen. Charlatan. The Charlatans. Happy Mondays. No. Oh, Embrace. Embrace is correct. Pulp. Pulp is correct. Corner Shop. Yes, they're one hit. Ash. Ash, yes. Catatonia. Yes. Travis. Yes. And Space. Space. So I've missed space. one. There's one in the middle. Do you know who it was, Manveen? No, I thought that was pretty exhaustive. What <laughs> um, actually, I can't remember which one you missed. Is it Ian Brown? You didn't say Ian Brown, did you? Ian Brown's uh, in the middle. That'd be the baggy Manchester. Just give me that. Yeah, that was Manchester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were close. You were close enough. Uh, in fact, when I played it earlier on, Anne said, sorry I wasn't listening as I was reading reading an email, but I heard Female of the Species by Space. And I love that song. <laughs> Which is nice. It's um, the theme tune of Bold Feet, wasn't it? Oh, of course it was. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Yeah. And it, it just got us thinking, Matt, about the interaction between politics and pop and how sort of Tony Blair rode that wave pre-97 and actually afterwards, Noel Gallagher going to Downing Street and all of that. And then afterwards, it doesn't take long before suddenly politicians aren't cool anymore. And, you know, maybe it was ever thus. Mm. Well, the Cool Britannia bubble pretty much burst for two reasons. The first one... Uh, that killed Britpop was the Spice Girls. The Spice Girls and pop came back and guitar music came away again. And then in September 1997, Diana died. And um, that changed the entire mood of the nation, whether you were sort of invested in it or not. And it sort of brought on a much more reflective, darker time, whereas the, that bit of the 90s, to my young memory, uh, seems very sunny and um, <laughs> all very sort of patriotic. And then that happened and everything changed. So Pulp released this album called This Is Hardcore, which was jaded and dark and seedy. Oh, Blur yeah, went yeah. all grungy and released Beetle Bum and Song 2. Oasis released Be Here Now, which was a terrible, Nobody terrible wants um, so that, I mean, just things very suddenly uh, changed. And with that, I guess, the political narrative. It's interesting, um, Manvin, I was sort of thinking about this. Most of the political uh, music that we see now, sort of in the mainstream at least anyway, tends to come from 
grime and rap rather than guitar bands necessarily, you know, getting getting involved in politics in the way they clearly did 25 years ago. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I mean, I think it's partly because sort of a lot of mainstream music is about not offending people and making money, basically. So, you know, you, you sort of had even Taylor Swift sort of having to step back from being political, having been political, because yeah. it annoys a lot of people who'd be buying her records. Um, <laughs> so I think there's probably a fear of that, whereas it, grime, you know, you're, you're being provocative and that's what people are buying. Um, but, I, you know, I think it's a great shame. That's, that's sort of what music should be doing. And in a way, that's why that Britpop moment was sort of, I mean, it was such an aberration. Um, musicians are never supposed to get on with politicians. And I think it was just a very brief moment. And then, you know, it it, it was a bit like sort of Obama. There was just this sort of huge, you know, swell of, of hope and this moment where suddenly politics seemed cool. But that's always going to lead to a disillusionment. That's just that, you know, you're setting yourself up for a fall. And I think that's exactly what happened here. Um, and it was really interesting because I think years later, I just remember reading a piece where people who were who were part of that wave, who went into number 10 uh, and met Tony Blair, were sort of, I think it was Damon Albarn who was sort of saying he does, was actually interested in going into politics at one point. And then he met Tony Blair. Who was, <laughs> who was, so, he he was so disturbed by what it what a, a professional politician was that he decided it wasn't for him. Mm. Uh, and I think I think that's really interesting. And then later, 2017, Jeremy Corbyn tried to ride a similar wave, obviously, you know, being having his name chanted at Glastonbury, he did an interview with NME where he promised to deal with the debts of students who'd already graduated. And he basically made it sound like he was going to write off. He was Not only was he going to get student fees, rid of student fees altogether, he said he was going to deal with those who'd already built up student debt. Because, you know, he got a bit carried away with NME. And again, then he had to row back on it and and, uh, and actually say, actually, no, we weren't, we weren't doing that um, necessarily. Um, I don't really know where... Um, politicians would go. I, I think it's. I think it's interesting that. Is it, sorry, just just suddenly thought. It's really interesting that sort of so many of those people. You, you you talked about the time where you know music was political, and so many of the people who were writing that music or were part of it uh, now sort of come out as aging rockers and are all Tories, <laughs> which is always <laughs> so surprising. It's so I don't know true. how that happens. You've got the who uh, with you know won't be fooled again. Here comes the new boss, same as the old boss, and Roger Daltrey is a Brexiteer yeah. and still stands up for it, which is just ridiculous to consider. Um, and Damon Alburn, he actually, to his credit, um, he didn't. He actually rejected the uh, the Downing Street. Um, invitation after he, he'd met Tony Blair somewhere else because <laughs> he was really, really really into it as well and as you said but Dave Roundtree the drummer has actually gone on to become a Labour councillor as well so there's still that little thing but the only guitar thing I can think of from these days that won't doesn't really isn't really mainstream but it's on six music a lot is Sleaford Mods who are not backward and coming forward oh, about yes. the situation. Yeah, but yeah. they're not they're not oasis size. They're not blur size. You and know, maybe that's just... part of it. Maybe that maybe that's slightly yeah. why. In fact, we've got yeah. um in a couple of weeks, Glenn uh Matlock is coming on to do If I Ruled the World. And he's he's basically fallen out with oh, many reasons why he's fallen out with Johnny Rotten, but they do really disagree on the subject of Brexit. Um uh so yeah, it's just interesting that's like even being played out just within the sex pistols. Um so we just got in touch on the text. No name on it, but it's a great story. This uh, in 1998, Ash organized the famous Waterfront Hall concert, encouraging people to vote yes in the Good Friday Agreement referendum. Despite organizing the gig, Ash ended up as the support act with U2 as the headliner. Ash and New Labour on the same side then, but then so was nearly everyone else. So that's interesting. That we ought to uh, definitely have a return to that. Right from music then to one of my other favourite things, the pub. 
And uh, Jeremy Hunt was very keen to help the pubs yesterday in his budget. From the 1st of August, the duty on draft products in pubs will be up to 11 pence lower than the duty in supermarkets. It's a differential a Conservative government will maintain as part of a new Brexit pubs guarantee. Madam Deputy Speaker, Madam Deputy Speaker, British ale is warm, but the duty on a pint is frozen. Uncurl your toes from those uh, jokes. But is this a good idea? And what difference will it actually make to pubs? Speak to Manfred and Matt in just a minute. But regular listeners with uh, with uh, long memories will know that uh, we've twin we tw- long time ago now we twins the show with Chorley Chorley in Lancashire, where Lindsay Hall's the local MP, and we uh, went there for. What was that? It was for Lindsay Hoyle had a had a big conference there with other parliamentary speakers. Anyway, we used to we we uh, check in with Glenn Hutchinson from Spinners at Cowling. Uh, we had a lovely meal then, a couple of pints I seem to remember. And uh, Glenn is on the line now. Hi, Glenn. Hi, how are you doing? I'm not bad at all. How's Chorley this morning? Yeah, not so bad. A little bit uh, damp and a little bit cold, but apart from that, all's good. Very good, very good. So uh, Jeremy Hunt loves the pub. What difference will the Brexit pubs guarantee make to you? Um, it's every little bit's a help, I suppose we could say, but um, unfortunately, the, the, the increases that are, are coming and adding on, it's it's just a, it's just going to slow the the uh, the tumbleweed down, if we will. And it needs they need to do more. Eleven p a pint's helpful for us, but it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't take on the big picture, unfortunately. So, what are those other costs that you're facing right now? The massive the the electric and gas increases have gone sort of fourfold from what we were paying. Um, our beer costs, for instance, this year, Heineken products have gone up. You know, fifty, sixty p a pint to us. That's just to us before we even sort of look at the GP on it. Um, other other uh, brewers, um, Diageo, uh, Molson Coors, they're all pushing increases over the next month or so. So. You know, the, 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 the 11p a pint is, is already going to be wiped out yeah, yeah, by yeah. what the increases are coming, you know. So, Matt, what did, gotta... yeah, Glenn, thank you for that. Matt, what did you make of this? Jeremy Hunt trying to be the friend of the pub. Everyone loves a pub, but it doesn't sound like it's going to make that much difference in terms of pubs trying to stay open. Basically, it feels like everyone, look, look over here. Let's go, let's go and get drunk while the country's falling apart so we can ignore it a little bit more. Um, it just feels like that, and this whole sort of man of the people thing. I, I don't know if Jeremy Pump, uh, Jeremy Hunt, has ever um, set foot in. That was uh, fine. I think you said punch there, Matt. You got away with that. I did say punch. I'm so <laughs> relieved. Even say much worse. I'm so relieved. Um, but I'm not sure if he's ever set foot in a pub ever. There's a few too many members clubs in London for him. But it just feels like yes, everyone, look over here, quick. Here's a dead cat in the shape of a 11p cheaper pint. <laughs> what do you think, Manly? I thought it it was quite cynical to call this sort of, you know, the Brexit British pub <laughs> deal. You know, this is this is finally the dividend we've been waiting for. Yeah. But, you know, as you've just heard, quite clearly, it's not going to make much difference for most pubs. And one of the reasons that you were just hearing that, you know, prices are going up already for people like Diageo, and they'll probably go up even more, is that the other move in the, in the budget yesterday was to raise taxes across the board yeah. on all other drinks. And, you know, the whis- whiskey is insane. It's now 75% of the cost of a bottle of whiskey is going in tax 
I mean, obviously, people who own these distilleries will have to raise prices, yeah, and that's yeah. going to affect pubs just as much. Matt Charlton and Manveen Rana there. Of course, you can catch Manveen every day on the Times' Stories of Our Times podcast from the Times and the Sunday Times newsroom. Right, coming up next, why aren't you at work? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Why are you even listening to this? Why aren't you at work? Stop listening. Put down the golf clubs and get back to work. That was one of the big messages from the back-to-work budget. Here's Jeremy Hunt. We have around one million vacancies in the economy. But excluding students, there are over seven million adults of working age who are not in work. That's a potential pool of seven people for every vacancy. Conservatives believe work is a virtue. We agree with the road haulage king, Eddie Stobart, who said the only place success comes before work is the dictionary. That was Jeremy Hunt yesterday. Well, the government is spending £7 billion on trying to get people back into the jobs market. The measures include more help with childcare for working parents, reforms to working age benefits, disability employment support and more generous pension tax allowances. Well, I've been speaking to the man behind it all, the Work and Pension Secretary, Mel Stride. And I asked him how many people he thinks he can get back to work. Well, some of it, of course, is being piloted, so it will take time to assess that as, as we go along. But um, I think the OBR are suggesting something in excess of 100,000, but um, some of the new approaches that we're taking, it will be a little early uh, to know at this point. But I think the most important thing is that we know that we've got if you exclude students, about 7 million people that are economically inactive, and that's a figure that increased quite strongly during the pandemic. Uh, and we need to drive that down if we're going to help the businesses that need those people grow the economy so that we have the taxes that are going to fund our public services. But perhaps just as importantly, to make sure people benefit from all the things that work has to offer. You've got 7 million people, like you said, who are economically inactive. You're spending £7 billion to get 110,000 back into work. That's £64,000 per person. Well, no, that's not quite the way to see it. The 110,000 that I've referred to is in addition to that, the number that was projected to be got back into work by the OBR in the absence of these measures. So that's 
an additional amount. Of course, a uh, huge amount of money is being spent uh, generally bringing people uh, back into the workforce. But this is us uh, stretching even further uh, uh, in that respect. Um, but if you look at the OBR uh, figures, the good news is that unemployment forecasts are, are better than they were. But the OBR says that the 110,000 that your schemes extra are going to get into work uh, includes 10, just 10,000 from tightening the benefit rules. But the 160,000 more workers coming in through increased net migration. Isn't the truth that, that the unemployment figures are looking better based more on more foreign workers coming in than your schemes getting people back into work? Well, it's a combination of, of different factors when you look at the economy as a whole. Now, nobody has ever said that we will stop uh, migration entirely, but our position remains that we think it's really important to use the skills and the ability and the surplus capacity that there is in the UK economy and the UK labour market uh, to fill the vacancies that we have. And at the moment, as you'll, uh, you'll know, Matt, we've got uh, over a million vacancies out there. So it's a very buoyant labour market. And what these measures are aimed at doing is to kind of get rid of a lot of the barriers, if you like, that stand in the way currently of those that are economically inactive and taking jobs. And you've mentioned, for example, childcare. That's a huge factor, uh, both its availability and its expense. And within universal credit, this whole issue of one month having to be paid up front, which we're now saying from today, um, those people that are claiming that will actually have that payment uh, made for them. So that will remove, that's a classic example of removing a barrier for people getting back into work. You're improving the employment figures more on bringing foreign workers in than you are on your £7 billion back to work scheme. A hundred, a hundred, according to the OBR's figures, 160 more workers coming in through net migration compared to the 110,000. And actually, the OBR says it's very uncertain about the back to work programme, it could be as high as 240,000, it could be as low as 55,000. Well, it, it, as I said earlier, I mean, nobody has said that we would suddenly go to a situation where we were stopping all migration into the UK. In terms of your, your concern, in. 7 million yeah. people economically inactive, mm. the entirety of your £7 billion scheme being announced today, back to work, the OBR says, very uncertain how many people will get back to work as a result. It could be as high as 240,000. It could be as low as 55,000 out of 7 million. It's an awful lot of money, isn't it, to be spending well, I think with no, no, no certainty that's going to get I know, I, anyone I, back I, to work. I think getting you know, a six-figure uh, increase in the number of people that would otherwise be in work, into work, uh, is not to be sniffed at. I think it's, uh, that's, that, that's an important achievement if we can pull that off. But I think what the range is demonstrating is that, of course, there are many factors impinging on the economy and great uncertainties that come in all sorts of different directions, not just around as how effective these economic interventions will be in the labour market, but also about what happens to the economy, what happens to inflation, what happens to energy prices and so on, uh, business investments and all sorts of other things, which will drive the final figure. And we can't know that in advance. And therefore, inevitably, as the ABR tends to do on almost every measure, it will give a range. But the fact remains that what we've done today is to roll out what the OBR has said is one of the most uh, uh, dramatic uh, interventions in the labour market that they've seen. Uh, and I am confident that we are going to really move the dial when it comes to getting tens and tens of thousands more people into work. It's going to be good for the economy, it's going to be good for business, and it's going to be good for those people that take those jobs. I know you've spent a lot of time trying to dig around into why people aren't in work. Have yeah. you got a sense of how many of them are 
people aren't in work because they're waiting for operations or they're they're caught up in the NHS backlog? Well, we know, I don't specifically know, I, I, I'll be able to look at the number of those that were in backlogs and were also economically uh, inactive. But what I do know is you've got two and a half million people who are either disabled uh, or long-term uh, sick. And that's where the white paper that we've delivered today is so important, because what that's going to fundamentally do is really focus on what people who are receiving those benefits can do rather than what they can't do. So we're going to remove the disincentive that there is there for those people to go into work because they're worried that if it doesn't work out, they can't get back to going on to those benefits again. We're going to completely re-engineer the way that that works to make sure that that disincentive disappears. And I think that's going to be really important to many disabled people, uh, many that I speak to and my ministers speak to and the organisations that represent them that really want to be in work. And so that's just another one of those roadblocks uh, that we've announced we'll be removing. I was struck in the Chancellor's statement. He said, we believe work is a virtue, but we've heard from quite a lot of our listeners who they say they've saved up and they've been able to retire early. They said they're looking after relatives, parents, grandchildren. Is there no virtue in that? No, of course there is. And if somebody's worked hard all their life and they can afford to uh, retire, then uh, no, nobody in government is saying you have to be mandated to go back to work. Uh, none of us have that sort of uh, that sort of power. Um, but so it really people have to take their own choices. But what we are saying is, for example, if you take early retirees, uh, we want to better inform them as to what perhaps their financial situation might be when they look at it more closely, given the number of years that they're likely to uh, lead in good health. And that's increasing all the time, thankfully, uh, to really stop uh, check and see whether you know, there is an economic reason to come out of uh, uh, retirement. Of many people, there may well be, and we just want to open people's eyes to that. Um, but the other thing is that I, I think is uh, uh, really important is flexibility um, when it comes to job opportunities. There are plenty of people who have retired, uh, retired for a while. They might be in their 50s. Um, they don't want to go back full time necessarily. But if there was something that was a day a week, couple of days a week, few days a month or whatever, they've often got the kind of skills and the experience that's really important to businesses. So we want to encourage that as well, wherever we can. The final thing I'd add on this, Matt, is the very significant announcement the Chancellor made today about the lifetime allowance for pensions, which means a number of those whose uh, accumulated pensions were sort of bumping up a, uh, against a sort of rather harsh tax treatment that, that, that you reached at a certain time of your life has now been removed. And that's going to be great for uh, specialists and doctors and uh, surgeons and so on in the NHS, amongst others, and, and encouraging them to stay in work uh, rather than leaving it. Um, uh, touching on over 50s, actually, uh, you brought me on nicely. We've had lots of we get every time we discuss this, we get lots of messages from listeners. One of our listeners mm -hmm. who got in touch with Alan. He said he retired early, but he's since, in his words, unretired and he's looking for work. But he says the problem is if you're looking to do something new, no com company wants to wants to train over 50s on new technologies or systems. Employers don't have enough incentives to bring in over 50s. He says one idea could be reducing national insurance contributions that countries pay on salaries for older workers. But a lot of that seems to be the problem that comes up again and again. Older workers who wouldn't mind working, actually, like you said, maybe a bit part time, maybe a bit flexibly. They say that employees just don't want to touch them but because they feel they're over 
uh, they're overqualified or what's the point of training them up? They're only going to be around for five or 10 years. Um, they, they, they say it's the employers that are the problem, not, not the, not the, not the uh, prospective workers. Well, I, I think there's probably something uh, in that with some employers. There are many employers who are absolutely exemplars when it comes to taking on older workers. B&Q is one of them. And you go to B&Q store, you get looked after by somebody who gives you the time, uh, has got the knowledge. And, you know, it's just a wonderful uh, a wonderful experience. And that's partly because uh, they they have a lot of uh, uh, older workers. We do have uh, over 50 work champions in all the districts that we have uh, uh, JCPs, uh, uh, job centres up and down uh, the country. And we are putting a lot into that. And you will be hearing more from the department in terms of making sure people are aware of the kind of support that we're providing. When it comes to the over 50s, though, Matt, it's not just uh, whether uh, those people feel that the opportunities are there. Sometimes it's that they've they, they've not, they become not well. Um, they're, they're, they're sick, and uh, that has been a growing factor amongst that particular cohort. And that's why we've announced today a, a new scheme called Work Well, which will bring together uh, work on the one hand, uh, for particularly for those perhaps with uh, mental health conditions, where work can be part of the process of making people better, uh, along with the kind of uh, clinical and health support uh, that they also need. So there's a whole new approach that's going to be uh, happening there and we're going to be rolling out, which also will be very important to to the over 50s. Uh, finally, then on this on that group, Jeremy Hunt talked about getting people off the golf course. It doesn't just have to be about playing playing golf, he said uh, to the Times uh, back in January. Um, do you think this will get people to down their clubs and return return to work? Well, um, you know, the last thing I want to do is is, is hammer the, the golfing fraternity. Um, but there's room for both in life, isn't there? I think are you, you, can, are you um, a golfer. Are you uh, a golfer? Do you know, I, no, I, I'm not. I have to say, although I, I, did, <laughs> I, I did take a golf lesson once, and it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a huge uh, hole that I was a fairway that I was driving down, but I did get a hole in one. So did my you? hope is, yeah. So my hope is that uh, I'll be as good at getting people back to work as I was on that occasion when I got the ball down in one. <laughs> uh, Mel Strite, Working Page Secretary. Thanks very much for joining us on Times Radio. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Get back to work. That's the message from the government. It's spending £7 billion on back-to-work schemes, including extra help with childcare, uh, extra help with uh, pensions and disability support, working age benefits. But is it going to work? Every time we talk about this on the show, uh, we get absolutely inundated with loads of you who have views on whether or not uh, the government uh, knows what it's doing. Uh, Rosie says, the government might have missed that the over 50s are the ones who are looking after their elderly relatives. They're the country's volunteer force. And they're also enjoying life uh, way too much after a lifetime of working in the all too often brutal, knackering, uncaring world of work that exists nowadays. Good luck to them. Yeah, that's, uh, that's for Rosie. And Charlie in Cheshire says, here's a revolutionary idea. Rather than giving tax breaks to the over 50s to encourage them to work, keep working, how about encouraging companies to employ over 50s? At least three of my friends and I, who are in our 50s, have very impressive CVs, master's degrees, and experiences both broad and deep. But we've all given up applying for jobs because we don't even get a reply. Well, one of them, somebody else in that situation, is Alan. Alan got in, uh, Alan got in touch with us, Times Radio uh, listener. And uh, if I, I put Alan's point to uh, Mel Stride uh, in the interview. Morning, Alan. Morning, morning. So you had a long, successful career working with big multinational companies, uh, um, but you, you're looking for work, but without success. Mel Stride suggests being q Do you fancy that? I, no, I don't particularly, but I have been doing all sorts of different work to keep and make, make ends meet. 
And uh, I think this is one of the things that's, that's missed in this whole debate, is there are plenty of people who are over the age of 50, I'm over 60, by the way, um, but this this whole attitude, both in the media and also in government, that suggests that people over the age of 50 um, are past it. And this whole debate around or this, this, this suggestion that loads of people are out on the golf course is just is, is trivialising the whole the whole topic. So I, I feel very strongly that, uh, that we're, we're not focusing on it in a in a in a in a business like way. Um, both in the media and also the government, missing the point entirely. And time and time again, whenever we discuss it on the show, we get inundated with people saying basically exactly your story, that you, you apply for work and you don't even get a response. And in part, it seems to me, you know, summarising, uh, the, the businesses think, well, we'll just get some young people in, we can pay them badly, treat them badly, and they won't give us any grief, rather than actually hiring people who might be, have some experience, but also, you know, might want to be treated properly. I agree. I think the, the idea of incentivising businesses to look at getting older people back into their organisations would be a very good idea. Um, the people um, of, of my age got an awful lot of experience and knowledge that would be invaluable to those organisations. Yeah. But going through the recruitment process that exists these days, we don't get a look in. And so listening to the uh, previous um, uh, people who, were, who, who you were just referring to, having that, that same experience, but it, it's echoed again and again and again in people in my age group. And it's a, it's, it's a complete waste to society, as, as it is to ourselves. Absolutely. Alan, really good to speak to you. Alan Mason, thank you for that. Mark, let's speak to Mark Pryor now. You're in a slightly different position. You've retired from a job in the city and you don't want to go back to work. No, that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I retired at 57, um, slightly earlier than I intended, but it was the, the right time. Um, I thought at the time, if I wanted to go back to work, I was young enough to go back to work if, uh, if, if I decided to change my mind. But uh, since being retired, I really enjoy it. Um, you're not bored. You're the thing that always was, I wonder always, Mark, you're not bored. No. Um, so I do a little <laughs> bit of voluntary work. Yeah. Um, I play a lot of golf. I go to the theatre a lot. Ah, so you are yeah. on the golf. You're the problem. You're, you're everything that's wrong with Britain, Mark. You're on the golf course when you could be at work. Uh, that's true. And so, yeah, <laughs> joking aside, I do feel slightly guilty sometimes, not for long, but sometimes. That, uh, that I'm not at work, uh, particularly when there's a labour shortage. But when I think a little harder on that, um, I, I think it's pretty unlikely. I couldn't go back to doing what I was doing before because that was a sort of full-time job. There's no part-time option to, to the role I had. Um, and uh, I have some transferable skills, but I think getting another job at nearly 60, not sure it's going to happen. Um, so I am thinking about doing some more voluntary work, maybe stepping up to a couple of days a week. And in terms of that, getting into the ins and outs of your bank balance, are you, given the, the, the turmoil we've had, well, I, mean, I suppose Brexit, pandemic, you know, the banks have seem to be wobbling again now, inflation, the war in Ukraine, all that, are you confident that your nest egg, if you like, is going to be enough for however long, you know, 20, 30 years uh you might yeah. be in retirement, or are you having to rethink your plans given what's happened to the economy? Uh, no, I'm very, very fortunate. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, it just doesn't, doesn't worry me. All right, well, well, I won't keep you. You need to get back to the golf course. Mark, really good to speak to you. Thanks a lot for that. Uh, good <laughs> to speak to us. Mark Pryor there. Of course, it's not everyone uh, is out of work because they've uh, you know managed to retire early. Some people, and this makes up a big old chunk of these 8 million people who are economically inactive, is the long-term sick. Uh, the budget outlined the biggest reforms to welfare in a decade, according to the Institute of Fiscal Studies. 
In order to help those with disabilities back into the workforce, the government's going to scrap the controversial fit-for-work test, instead using the personal independence payment known as PIP test, which only measures the extra living cost for disability. So you won't lose your benefits if you go uh, back into work. Well, in November, I spoke to Elizabeth Hobson. She worked as an accountant in Durham, but had to stop working in February 2022. So we thought we'd check in with Elizabeth, and she sent us her thoughts on the government's latest plans. I have been out of work since 2021, since contracting long COVID. My main concern is about the fitness to return to work. Policy that's been mentioned in the budget is, I think it's really difficult when PIP assessments are taking place to prove those hidden illnesses. And my concerns are that people are going to be forced back to work or have their benefits sanctioned because they're not able to fulfil these tests. I've tried several times to get back into the workplace and that's been really difficult because reasonable adjustments have been tried to made for me but it's really difficult for employers to do everything that's needed and you know some of the things that I need are a break during the day to rest and not as much time on screens and um, because my cognitive function really gets impacted with brain fog as an accountant it's really hard to say I can't work on screens as much so employers understandably can't make that adjustment. It's also been quite difficult to get back into the workplace because I've tried to do basic finance roles such as just data entry which I'm obviously overqualified for and people are quite dubious as to why I would want to go into a, a basic role when I'm overly qualified for it and even if employers are understanding it's quite difficult for employees to grasp that I'm not into still their jobs or you know want to progress higher than them within an organisation and that's been quite difficult. That's Times Ready listener Elizabeth uh, just updating us on her situation well we can speak to another one now Leslie uh, is on the line morning Leslie. Hi there. Good to have you with us now you're sort of in a similar situation you've you've just claimed benefits for the first time You've had long COVID for three years and now you're receiving treatment for cancer. So, I mean, you've had a terrible time of it. What do you make of the this whole conversation around if you're economically inactive, you ought to be thinking about going back to work? Yeah, I mean, I can get excited about the prospect of 110,000 more people into the workforce when we're talking about a potential talent pool of 7 million. Um, I think the £7 billion could, could be spent better and then one of the groups I think could benefit is the, is the group that Elizabeth is part of and I am part of because there are 2 million people in the UK who are experiencing long Covid. Um, for me it'll be three years tomorrow and I am still working but not paid. Um, I've been an advocate for people with long COVID since June 2020 through Long COVID Support, which is now a charity. Um, and <clears throat> we celebrated Long COVID Awareness Day yesterday to try and help people understand the impact of this poorly understood condition and the potential that exists in this pool of 2 million people. Most of those people are already out of work, falling out of work, underemployed or staying in work, but struggling mm. <clears throat> to stay in work and are basically burning out. We are not supporting people well um, because of the HR looks at people as assets that we want to recruit people to into a profile and we want people to perform that task. Um, the, the chap who plays golf was saying he couldn't do his work part time. Um, part of the problem we have is I'm capable of still working and doing yeah. paid work. 
my background is I was head of talent for a division of a FTSE 100 company. So this is my wheelhouse. I know lots of ideas and things that we could do to source untapped talent, to plug leaks in the pipeline of talent. Um, and what is being said about people benefiting from work, we, we agree with yeah. and we would love to be in work, but not at the expense of our health. Um, I contracted COVID the week before lockdown. A great many of our number did so, or our key workers who continued to work while we all sheltered at home. And they've just been allowed to fall out of work. Um, they're even struggling to get ill health retirement in many cases, even though they clearly have no capacity to work 12 hour shifts on the front line. So for me, the solution is to think differently about what talent looks like. Um, You've mentioned about recruitment processes and the inbuilt ageism and ableism that exists is huge and needs to be tackled and re-engineered at the same time as we're re-engineering mm. any benefit yeah. um, processes. I mean, I applied for PIP in 2022 um, and I was declined because as Elizabeth said, hidden illnesses is very hard to meet the criteria, although when I appealed, I realised exactly how to frame it. But I'll be waiting for a year before I'll get a tribunal. So as, as I said to your researcher, I ended up um, realising I could play contribute, I could claim contribution based employment support allowance in January this year. And that was the, f and I got the first penny of benefits this week in three years. Wow. So I've been living up with my husband and my savings and I did try to do lots of freelance work, but mm. once the um, move changed from everything being on Zoom and online, and I had to go back to do a contract that I'd been able to keep for the first year, and I had to go back to in-person working, I just couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I have lots of <clears throat> experience in returnships as well. I led a women returners programme for the Scottish government successfully. And everyone thought it was all about getting the women to feel more confident about going back to work. But it was about educating the employers as yeah. to, you know, this person has a child to pick up from school. Um, so this overlaps with the, the whole childcare issue, which the government has bitten the bullet on and put some They have put some into money into. Uh, Leslie, thank you. For, return. Thank you, uh, Leslie. Thank you for that. Just finally, then, we thought we'd complete the picture with the, uh, the picture from uh, employers. Small about small business owners. Well, Nick Till runs the Riverside... Uh, sorry, the Riverhead Coffee Cafe in Grimsby. Uh, we spoke to Nick back in uh, November when she was struggling to recruit people. Uh, Nick, is it getting any easier? Um, I mean, slightly easier. Um, I would say um, we are almost fully staffed at the moment. When we do put recruitment ads out, we're still not getting the volume of people that we would have done previously, pre-COVID. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Things are slightly easier. And it's interesting. So Richard's been in touch so with an employer's perspective. He says, last December, I posted a technician's job uh, up to £35,000. Specifically stated, no experience of flexible hours available. Happy to train people. Was hoping for some 50-plus years applicants, but got none. Where are they looking and what are their criteria? Are they open to learning new things? Not criticising, just seem to understand how to attract them. And there just seemed to be this tension. On the one hand, the government's saying, look at all these people, they're desperate for work. And yet there's a, you know, there's, there's a million vacancies. And then you're saying that actually, you know, when you do advertise, you don't get a massive queue of people. No, yeah, indeed. I mean, in terms of like the, the stuff on the budget, um, there's, I'm assuming there's not, well, I, I could probably say that there's not going to be a huge amount of people who have retired early who want to come and work in a coffee shop um um to come back to work um however i don't like i do have my like my dad works for me like three days a week doing oh, delivery nice. driving yeah just you know but just help out the family business get in working uh, yeah <laughs> but the childcare, the childcare element of things um i think would um will, will potentially help in terms of the hospitality that's true um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
um, trying to get people, you know, with with younger uh, younger age children, um, back into work easier and make it more financially benefic- beneficial for them. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.